I want to just give a little bit of an introduction as to kind of just what, uh, how God worked with me through Galatians and, and what was going on in my life at the time. So I worked in an office job, lots of stress, a lot of things going on. And so we, we have to take an hour lunch. That's, that's the rule. Can't take a half hour. I prefer a half hour, right? Get out of here. Take a half hour and then leave a half hour early. Nope. Hour lunch. So I would go on these, these long walks, about a 45-minute walk, and I, would, and I started listening to the book of Galatians. And Galatians, as you know, is a fairly short book. It's only six chapters. And so I'd have it on, you know, 1.5 speed. You know, you ever have that on your phone? Just listen to it. So I could, sometimes I could listen to it two times in a, in a walk. Listen to the whole book of Galatians. And I did that for a number of months, actually. So five days a week, roughly, there'd be times I wouldn't do it. But on my lunch, I'd be going on this walk, listening to the book of Galatians. And just listening to the Word of God is a whole different thing. The Bible talks a lot about listening. And it's really fascinating. The reason why I talked about listening was because people didn't have Bibles. They had to go to the synagogue, listen to it actually be read, and remember it. And so there's something just unique about having the Bible go in through the ear gate rather than the eye gate. I mean, it's good to read it. I'm not against reading it, obviously, but I'd encourage you, take some time just to listen to it as well, if you have that little app on your phone, and just change it. So I was listening to it over and over and over again, and just, it just started to kind of fall open to me. And I started to perceive things from God's word, what God had for his people, and what Galatians was about. So as you can tell by the, the, the notes, I entitled the message, Revival of the Fittest. The book of Galatians is about reviving the church. We are prone to wander away from the gospel. There's even been songs written that, right? that way. Prone to leave the God I love, take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Christians have felt this way experientially. The Bible addresses this because we're prone to it. We are just prone to wander away from the gospel. Another note on Galatians. I believe, as in my study, that this was... I, I know this for sure. This was Paul's first letter that he ever wrote. He wrote Galatians. And every letter that Paul ever wrote was dealing with a problem. So the first letter that Paul writes is dealing with a problem that the Galatians have, which is they are forgetting the gospel. They're being troubled about some things that people are bringing into the gospel. And by the way, this might have been the second letter of the entire New Testament that was ever written. So this is very early in church history. There's already issues with the gospel. I mean, God must, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, what's that movie, uh, The Incredibles, where he's giving his interview, Mr. Incredible, and he says, I just cleaned up this place. Can't you keep it straight for five minutes? I wonder if God feels that way sometimes about us with the gospel. We're just so prone to forget what Christ has done on our behalf. And we need to be called back to it. We need to be called back to God. So as I call this revival, I wonder what comes into your mind when I say that word revival. What do you think about with revival? Do you think about a tent? 
And you think about an organ playing just as I am over and over again. Come to the front, come to the altar. Is that what revival is? How do you think of revival? Well, let me share just a few definitions of revival. So some see revival as an equal experience to regeneration. It's the same thing. It's just a synonym. It happens when people get saved. R.C. Sproul would be an example of holding this view. Some see revival as a special, direct outpouring of the Holy Spirit by God on the people of God. It's a subsequent, it is subsequent to salvation and happens apart, that means separate from, the ordinary means of grace. And the means of grace are preaching the word, communion, and baptism. In other words, it's just a random event. The Holy Spirit gets poured out. This is not an individualistic experience. It is the whole church experiences this as a whole, and many Christians experience it at the same time. That's another idea for revival. I want us to think about it maybe kind of split in the middle there. I want us to think of revival as understanding it in the context of the word being preached. It is individualistic. Hopefully you as individuals understand that we need our hearts revived weekly. My wife listens to a podcast, Revive Our Hearts. But I'm thinking it more individualistically that we need our hearts revived but with a corporate idea, too, that we together would experience that and then have ministry in our little pockets where we find ourselves, work, our community, our family. So our hearts need to be revived. Now, what Paul is going to address throughout all of Galatians is these ceremonies that these people are trying to bring into the Galatian church. And some think that Paul is only concerning his writing with these ceremonies. But let me quote here. If ceremonies have not the power of bestowing justification, the observance of them is therefore... We must remark, however, that he does not confine himself... That's Paul. Paul is not confining himself entirely to ceremonies but argues generally about works. Otherwise, this whole discussion would be trifling. So the point is, there, specifically in Galatians, he's talking about circumcision and, and other issues. But it's, it doesn't apply just to those specific Jewish ceremonies. This is to all good works that we would bring to the table. We have a tendency, as our native tongue, is that our natural way of thinking that we have to somehow make God happy. Be a good little boy, be a good little girl, and God, God won't be angry with you. No, wrong. We do want to please the Father, we do want to obey the Father, but we're not doing it to appease or earn His, His, His love, Period. So there are no good works that we do to make God happy with us. All the good works have been done. So let's look at this. You know, it's so weird because you didn't, I'm going to give more of an introduction. Sorry, there's one more thing. You just, you, just things are, it, 
what I want you to know is your salvation, your being with God is personal to God. Okay, just back up, because we're really going to be looking at verses 11 through 24, and I just have to say this again. Look at verse 6. We're going to address verse 6 later, but I just have to say it now. Paul writes to the Galatians. By the way, Paul's normal style of writing, you read all of his other letters. He says, hi, my name's Paul. Hey, it's so good to hear you guys are standing in the faith. I love you guys. God's great. Hey, here's what's going on. He doesn't do that in Galatians. He says, hi, I'm Paul. Here's the back of my hand. Whack! <laughs> Look what he says, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That is the issue that the Galatians were facing. I think it's the issue that we face daily. There are a million gospels in the world, and they're constantly saying, come to me. Come to me for peace. Come to me. Come to me. I'll give you what you need. I'll give you the pleasure that you're looking for. Come to me. Come on, come on, come on, come on. It's vanity fair if you've read Pilgrim's Progress. Come on, come on, come on, come on. There's some pleasure this way. Come on, this way. There's a million gospels constantly calling to us, constantly beckoning us, constantly saying, it's going to be good. Now look what Paul juxtaposes the different gospel to. Does he say, I am astonished you're leaving the true gospel? I mean, he could have said that and that would have been accurate, right? But what does he say in verse 6? I am astonished that you are, what? Deserting him who called you. You see, when you leave the gospel, you're not leaving the doctrine of the gospel. You're not leaving the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You're not leaving. You're, you're leaving a person. God is intimately involved in your salvation, and he cares about your salvation. So it's not, I want you to know, it's not... <laughs> it's not impersonal for God. It's the same thing when you think about divorce. The reason why I care about divorce happening is not because, oh, that institution of divorce just sure took a knock because people got divorced. Is that why we care about divorce? Why is divorce painful? Because there's paperwork involved? Is that the problem with divorce? Is the problem with divorce now, ah, oh, now we've got to split our assets. Yes, granted, all that's painful, I get it. But what's the, pro what's the thing about divorce is that it's, it's the abandoning of love between two people. It's the breakdown of that. I, I saw a gal I went to high school with. Again, I'm way off my notes, but whatever. I saw a gal I went to high school with. And she said she got divorced. Now, she's not walking with the Lord. She's not a Christian. And she said she'd gotten divorced. I said, oh, I'm sorry. Why does everyone say that? I'm I'm happy. Okay. I'm saying it because I'm a normal human being. And at some point, you had your hopes and dreams pinned on this person, and that dissolved. You can't be happy about that. <laughs> Granted, I know it's probably really bad until you. But I'm sorry for being a normal human being and thinking and that you hoped to have some joy with this person. I know it's really odd. But that's the point, right? It's not the doctrine, or it's not the paperwork, it's not the marriage certificate that we're worried about. Well, I've got to go shred that now. No, it's the relationship. And that's how it is with God. When, when we 
when we abandon the gospel, it's that relationship with God that he is worried about, that he's hurt over. It's personal to him. All right, let's get back to our notes. Revival of the fittest. So there's just three simple points. Let me go back to my outline for you. We need to get the gospel right. So when we are struggling with, with, with bringing our good works to God, and we all do this. You know, I was praying the other day, and I was just thinking, like, God, I know I'm not as bad as most, but I know I'm still bad. And this illustration popped in my head. Like, it's like, saying, it's like having a credit score of 100, you know, because 800 is a good credit score. It's like having a credit score of 100 and then comparing yourself to someone who has a credit score of 50. I'm twice as good as that person. It's still a really bad credit score. That's how it is. With, we, we just tend to compare ourselves. That's just how we're geared. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm trying to like edge out somebody over here. See, God, I'm, I'm a little bit... Oh, it's ridiculous. No, no, no. We need that gospel. We need the gospel back with us. So it's three simple points here. It's got to be God's gospel that we get back to. Secondly, it is God's work. And third, it is God's glory. So that's just our big picture. We'll be dealing with those things as we go through this. All right. So the best compliment you could give me as we talk about the gospel and the best compliment any preacher could give is this, comp this man preaches to us as if we were sinners. Because that's the good news, that though we are sinners, God loves us, gave his son for us so that we can be in right relationship with him. So revival is important to the church today. I believe because myself included, and I believe the church as a whole, I think will sometimes reveal the life, reveal, will sometimes resemble the life of Samson. Remember Samson? He did more good in his death than in his life. I really hope that's not true for us in this room. So we need to be revived to be more effective for the kingdom of God. And the way to be effective for God is to be affected by God. To experience the nearness of God in a mighty way by the church can turn the whole world upside down. That's what we need. And I'm going to give you two examples of why I'm, I'm so passionate about it being the gospel and the word of God. First off, I'm still waiting for my revival when the movie The Passion of the Christ came out. I was promised a revival. I was still waiting. I was told that was the greatest evangelistic tool in 2,000 years. And that pissed me off. I was so mad about that. What do you mean the greatest evangelistic tool in 2,000 years? What about the preaching of the word? <sighs> I'm still waiting for my revival. Second one I'm still waiting for the revival on is this pandemic we've been in. Oh, this is a great opportunity. Okay, where are the untold thousands? Listen, God doesn't need movies. God doesn't need pandemics. He pours out his spirit on his people. Jesus told Nicodemus, what, the wind blows where? Wherever it wants. And you don't know where it's coming or where it's going. Such it is with people that get saved. So we don't know when it's coming. I'll give you a third example. When... When Jonathan Edwards preached, I'm, I'm so far off my nose, this is awesome. When Jonathan Edwards preached, 
sinners in the hands of an angry God. He preached to his congregation first. And you know what happened? They yawned. Preach us another one. <laughs> then he was guest preaching at a different church, and people were moaning in the pews. What do we do to get saved? So you don't know. You don't know when God's going to use what, where, or how. It's the wind blowing. So we, we need God to freshly blow on us as his people with his spirit. All right? You bunch of sinners. <laughs> That's what we need. So the first point is it must be God's gospel. Let's read our text, pray, <laughs> and then we'll, uh, we'll work through this as best we can. So let me read it. 11 through 24 of chapter 1 of Galatians is what we're reading. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Let me pray for us. Father, focus our hearts, focus my heart on your word here this morning. May your gospel revive us. I don't know who in this room has wandered this week, who in this room has, has thought ill of the gospel, not intentionally, but by presenting to you our good works as if they have any merit before you. So I pray that hearts would be renewed in the gospel this morning. We love you. We only love you because you first loved us. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So the first point, it must be God's gospel. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 11. I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. In, as we mentioned before, the Galatians, other gospels were being brought in. Other words were being brought in. Man's gospel has some features to it that we need to consider. What are some characteristics of man's gospel? The first one is merit, and we've been mentioning that. 
Verse 14, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. There's always merit involved. What are you doing? Every religion has this. Man must somehow earn what he gets. And it's really hard for us. I'm sympathetic with people who think this way because that's how it is in the world, right? And, and really, that's how it should be in the world. When I meet a person face-to-face, -face, I want to know that we're going to treat each other with respect. I don't think he should expect me to pay for him. I don't want him to expect me. I don't want him thinking that I'm expecting him to pay for me. We pay our own way. And why is that? Because we're equals. We're equals. But it's not that way with God. What are you going to give God? He owns everything. I mean, literally, just, just think for just a moment of trying to bring paper money to bribe God to get into heaven. It sounds stupid, doesn't it? But listen, that's, that's what literally everything on this planet. He made it all. What gold reserve is there that God doesn't know about and didn't place there? And then we think about our own talents and abilities. He gave, those, uh, he gave that to you too. N none of that. None of that's needed. We tend to think very highly of ourselves, highly of our ability. We, we don't realize the inability that we have. And that's what, that's what Christ wants. That's what Christ came for. For our inability So man's gospel, just be rest assured, if it requires some merit, it is, it is man's gospel. I think man's gospel is also characterized by its, by its clubbiness, by its exclusivity in, in that way, the country club mentality. If you flip over to verse, chapter 4, verse 17, you can see what these Galatians were facing. Uh, Paul, Paul describes it to them. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Sounds like a pyramid scheme. Oh, very exclusive club. Essential oils. Yeah, come on. No, 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 no. Listen. The club, that club is not exclusive. Right? You were born into that club. All right? You, you were born into the club of works righteousness. No, 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 no. Now, it's interesting to think of that exclusivity because that's one of the, the beefs that people have with Christianity is that it's exclusive. Right? Oh, there's got to be many ways to God. No, there's only one way. But that exclusive way is open to all. Right? Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's open to all. Revelation 5, every tongue, tribe, nation, and people are going to be represented in heaven. 
It's not a white guy's religion or a European religion or a Chinese religion. or a, It's none of that. I was, I was commenting on that with the college group this week that I am excited to get to heaven. We are, we are truly the only international group in the world. We are the only truly ethnic conglomerate of, of people in the world. I, I haven't traveled a lot. I've traveled a little. But when I've gone to other cultures in other places and been with Christians, there's instant fellowship. And they're eating weird food. And I still love them. And I'm still enjoying them. And I'm sure they're looking at me thinking I'm weird. But there's instant fellowship. I'm excited to be in heaven with, with Chinese people. With even Canadians. <laughs> right? We're going to be in heaven with these people. There's going to be Mexican Christians and Guatemalan Christians and Persian Christians and Israeli Christians and German Christians. It's going to be really exciting. So that exclusivity is really open to all because it's not about us. It's about Christ. Christ getting the glory. Third, notice man's gospel is superficial. Flip over a few more pages to Galatians 6. This is the thing about uh, man's gospel is, is they really don't care what's in your heart. Just as long as, you're, as you can put up the facade. Look at verse 12 of Galatians 6. It is those who want to make a good showing in, your, in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. People are interested in an easy life so that everyone just put on a facade, just do the external things. And, and my friends and I, we always talk about that, how people think the God of the Old Testament is harder than the God of the New Testament. And no way, it's harder. Because in the Old Testament, you could just go to the temple, do your thing, and then go live your life. And still we considered a good Jew. Now we know that's not really what was happening. God was still interested in their hearts. But Jesus makes it so much harder because he goes straight to our hearts. I'm not interested in all that external stuff. I want the core of who you are to be devoted to me. So man's gospel is characterized by that superficiality just want to make a good showing. Just like that pyramid scheme, you want a lot of people under you. So I, want, I wanted to take just a few minutes to think about what man's gospel looks like. Uh, just, just for a few reasons. First, so that we can recognize it in our own thoughts. How are, how are we trying to be meritorious towards God about his affection towards us. How do we do that? How do you do that? You know, remember, it's your native tongue. It's, it's what you naturally speak are your good works. Secondly, I want us to recognize it in the advice we give to others, namely our children, if you have any. It's so hard because sometimes I just want my kids to just obey. 
I'm not necessarily interested in their heart. I just want that external conformity. And those of you that are parents are sympathetic. Those that aren't are like, well, you should do better. Right? Don't ask why. Just go empty the dishwasher. But we have to think about that when we're, we want to make sure we're after each other's hearts. Right? That's why we have this community together. Even in our families, we want to make sure we're taking that time to get after our kids' hearts, after our spouse's hearts. So not, just not be external. And third, I, want, I, I wanted to bring that up so that you can recognize it when you receive it. You know, we'll go to a trusted source at times, and we're just people. We'll go to a trusted friend, and they'll give us advice, and it was bad advice. Or get this, sometimes from this pulpit, you might hear something. We need to be discerning. We need to know God's gospel so that we can call people to account. Ah, I don't, I don't smell like gospel. That smells like, that smells like a tomb. That smells like some rotting flesh. No, we want to have a nose for the gospel. We want to be able to smell it, that sweetness that draws us to Christ. That draws us to Christ. Secondly, so it must be God's gospel. If we're going to be revived, it's going to be by God's gospel, nothing else. There's no other good news in the world. Secondly, it must be God's work. Note how Paul is retelling his testimony. And I love it because by all accounts, Paul should have been the man. Later, Paul talks about how this is, these things that he described right here, Paul describes it later in Philippians as dung. The Greek word is skubalon. That's the stuff running in the sewer. It's a great word. That's what our, our works are before the Lord. But Paul, in, re, in relating his testimony, he goes deep theologically and I believe it applies to us. Let's look briefly at this 15 through 17. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, I'm sorry, we need to go above that. Uh, 13, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. That's Paul's work. He's working. And he's taking us somewhere. Listen, none of us can compete with what Paul did. Paul was really into it. And then he switches in verse 15 and he shows us, but that was nothing. Verse 15, he starts talking to us about God's work. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So let's stop there. First off, he called, he set Paul apart before he was born. God was working on your behalf before your existence. We need to remember this. This is Romans 9, if you don't know Romans 9. Paul, by all accounts, was the man. He, he says, no, Philippians 3, 1 through 8, he calls that scubalon, calls it dung. It was worthless. What it really comes down to is that God called me. Or, I'm sorry, God set me apart before the foundation of the world, before I was ever created. You see, God's choice of Paul preceded the choices that Paul made in this life. Because he made them before the foundation of the world. 
So God's choice supersedes, overrides our choices. So in eternity past, before the fall, but in light of it, God chose to save you. He was working on your behalf before you were born, setting out a plan for saving you, his people. Secondly, God's work, notice it is the voice of God. Look at verse 15. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Now, Paul's conversion had an audible call. Do you guys remember this in Acts? He's going along. He's going to go persecute some Christians. Bam, gets knocked off his donkey. And do you remember what he hears? What does he hear? Paul, Saul, it's actually Saul at this point. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, for our conversion, for our revival, we're probably not going to have an audible call. But I want you to understand that we have a spiritual calling that is no less the voice of God and not the voice of man. When God calls you to himself, it is God's voice that is actively calling you, that is involved in your revival and in your regeneration. This is what we talked about in in verse 6, right? He who called you according to his grace. Don't desert him. He called you. He called you by name. Maybe to help us think about this is John 10. Remember when John 10, Jesus says, what about his sheep? My sheep what? Hear my voice. And what do they do with another? They won't follow. They won't follow another. See, when God calls us, we respond as his people. He calls them by name, he says. And I lead them out to green pastures. See, it's God's work to call you to himself. And this is the creative, powerful work of God. This is, the, this is the, the, the calling that creates what it calls to be. This is like Genesis 1-1. God said what? Let there, or two, one, two, let there be light. And what was there? Light. So when he says you, you be a Christian, you be born again. He's not, he's not saying, all right, I'll go muster up being born again. No, when he says it to you, it creates in you the new life. When he says it in you, it brings you to him. It is that creative call of God. It's powerful. It's irresistible. Much like some of you used to think about your wives. I hope you still do. God is irresistible. But it is his work. He calls you. And listen, what I want you to know before we go into our second point is Jesus is still working for you. He called you, but he's also working behind the scenes. Right? We talked about that, that before the foundation of the world, but you know, there's, now he's still working and you, and you don't know what he's doing. But he gives us a little bit of a glimpse. Romans 8, he's interceding for you. You ever think about the fact that Jesus prays for you? He's still praying for you. 
What a blessing to think that your Savior. Do you think you're going to pray better than Jesus? No. It makes me almost not want to pray. I feel so foolish. Still pray, all right? Still pray. But the point is, is he's still working behind the scenes. He's praying for you. And you know what else he says in, in John 14? He says, what? I go to what? Prepare a place for you. Jesus is in heaven doing turndown service on your room where you're going to live forever. And I still act like the disciples on that last night when he had the Last Supper and he's going to be betrayed and he's going to go to the cross and the disciples are sitting there thinking how they can support Jesus and no, they're not. They're sitting there arguing, which of us is the greatest? <laughs> so stupid. Why do we act that way? Because we're just prone to it. But God loves us, and he's still preparing a place for you. He's still interceding for you. All right. Last part of God's work is that it is the unveiling of Jesus. Notice that in verse 16, when he was pleased to reveal the Son to me. You see, it pleases the Father to place the Son before your eyes, that the glory of Christ would become clear to you. And as Christians, it can get muddied. It can get unclear. And so that revival is to wipe that away and to have a clear vision of who Christ is and of his glory. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. There's the God of this world, and what is he doing? He's blinding the eyes of the unbelieving to what? The glory of God in Christ. But by God's grace, we can, we can see it fresh again. Oh, that's right. Christ is great. Christ is awesome. I'm not awesome. I don't need to argue with people about how great I am. That's just dumb. You can just let that... When, when you see... It's like, it's like playing basketball against the Warriors. Like, I would just feel like a child out there. That's how it is with Christ. Like, when we come to Christ, I'm not talking about my three-point game with Steph Curry. There is no three-point game, all right? That's how it is with God. We go to him, and it's about him, and we realize he is glorious. So we want that fresh... So I would say revival is experiencing the glory of Christ like you did when you were first saved. But that experience isn't for salvation. It's for invigoration. Nothing will get us to love our neighbor more than seeing Christ. And yet we forget to look at him. We forget to read the word. We forget to hear preaching. We just forget. We're forgetful. We're forgetful. capturing that, that glory of Christ, I think is like, it's like finding money. You ever go through an old pair of jeans and you find some money? Oh, sweet. Love it. I think sometimes that's what it's like for me as a Christian when I, when I forgot what Christ was like. And I'm like, oh my gosh, he was even better than I remembered. But he's better than money, right? You guys get that. It's just an illustration of that joy we feel. <laughs> If we can feel joy finding money, I think we can feel joy how great Christ was for the second 
third, fourth, fifth, sixth, millionth time. All right. The third and final point, I know you guys are excited. (laughs) Third and final point. It must be for God's glory. See, beginning in verse 16, he recalls what God did for him. And then he's recalling about how the church heard about it. Like, what? This dude Paul got, Saul got saved? And what did they do in verse 24? And they glorified God because of me. That's what we want our lives to be. We want our lives to be one that glorifies God, where the rest of the church can say, you are a mess. You were wreaking havoc in the church. Oh, praise God that you're not anymore. And listen, we all bring our own little messes to the church, right? We all do. As one preacher said, the church is like Noah's Ark. You couldn't stand the smell on the inside if it weren't for God's wrath on the outside. Right? We have to put up with one another. We all have little messes that we have to, to we're, we're helping each other. But God gets glorified in the fact that he, we're once saved. There's a, there's, a, there's a time when we weren't saved and now we are saved. And then we have this process of sanctification. And I think a lot of times we have illustrated as this slope upwards. Ah, I think it's more like the, you know, up, down, up, down. But generally it's upward, right? There's generally an upward trend towards God willing our holiness and our belief in him. God is glorified by that. But true revival leads to God receiving glory because revival sees God at work. So a revived heart perceives Christ, and we remember how great Christ is. We can, it's like finding a childhood toy and just remembering how much joy that toy brought you. A lot of times that's what it's like with Christ, just remembering, oh, that's right, that simplicity of my faith was, I was so happy when I was first saved. So happy when I was first saved. But now, as we, by God's grace, as we get older and more mature in our faith, it's not just that nostalgia, it's also, there's a training. I know Christ even better than I did when I was first saved. And he hasn't gotten less sweet. He's gotten more sweet. He's gotten better. You ever meet those people that make good first impressions? And then you're like, "Ah, I really don't like this person anymore. That's not how it is with Jesus. There's no hidden faults. He keeps getting better. Keeps getting better. So we, we can perceive that through revival. So what about you today? Why is revival important today. You might be wondering what a good revival would do for you. Well, let me illustrate it with, I think, a common experience that we've all had. Someone close to you may call you and ask you how you're doing and can tell by your response that you're not doing well. Maybe not physically, but emotionally or spiritually. They they can tell you're not feeling good. And they ask you, Can I come over? You want to see me? 
and you say, nah, I just need to be left alone. But because they're a good friend, they come over anyway. I hope you have a friend like this. They don't knock. You just walk in. You told them not to come, <laughs> but they came anyway. And you thank them by saying, I needed that. I think that's what God does for us. So many times we're praying for the things that we think we need from God. God, I need more money. I need more obedient children. I need a better wife or a husband. I need a better job. I need health. And we're listing out these things that we think we need from God. But instead, God does something else. He just comes over. He gives you himself. He gives you his time. He gives you his attention. He draws near to you. And I think if we, we think about it, that's what we need. And that's what revival is. That's how our hearts are revived, is the nearness of God to us. God doesn't always show up uninvited. It's important for us to seek him. James 4, 8 tells us. We are to draw near to God and he will draw near to us. But sometimes he just shows up uninvited. And that's glorious. I want to close with a Spurgeon quote. This is from uh, Morning and Evening. And just talking about the, the wandering of the dove as uh, Noah put these doves out after the ark had landed. Just, just a great illustration, I think, of how we wander as Christians at times. And we're sometimes fearful to get back to the Lord. But I want to encourage us not to be fearful. And, and I think this quote, if you'll indulge me for a few moments as I read it, <clears throat> will help illustrate that. So this is Charles Spurgeon commenting on Genesis 8-9. He says, Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto the ark. That's Noah pulling the dove who was wandering back into the ark. <clears throat> Let's read what Spurgeon says. Wearied out by all her wanderings, the dove returns at length to the ark as her only resting place. How heavily she flies, she will drop. She will never reach the ark, but she struggles on. Noah has been looking out for his dove all day long and is ready to receive her. She has just strength to reach the edge of the ark and can hardly alight upon it and is ready to drop when Noah puts forth his hand and pulls her in unto him. Mark that, pulled her in unto him. She did not fly right in herself. She was too fearful or too weary. She flew as far as she could. And then, oh, talk about ruining a moment. She flew as far as she could. And then he put forth his hand and pulled her in unto him. This act of mercy was shown to the wandering dove. And she was not chided for her wanderings. Just as she was pulled into the ark, so you 
seeking sinner with all your sin will be received. Only return. Those are God's two gracious words. Only return. What? Nothing else? No. Only return. She had no olive branch in her mouth at this time. Nothing at all. But just herself and her wanderings. But it is only return. And she does return. And Noah pulls her in. You. Fly. You wanderer. Fly, you fainting one. Dove as you are. Though you think yourself to be black as the raven in the mire of sin. Back, back to the Savior. Every moment you wait only increases your misery. Your attempts to plume yourself are all vanity. Come to him as you are. Return, you backsliding Israel. It does not say return. You repenting Israel. Doubtless there are such invitations. But no, you backsliding one. As a backslider, with all your backslidings around you, return, return, return. Jesus is waiting for you. He will stretch forth his hand and pull you in. Into himself. Your heart's true home. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you. Those words revive my heart. Thank you for Spurgeon that he preached the gospel. Our hearts are prone to wander, and we tend to not believe that you are kind to us, that you will chide us if we return. But such is not your nature. Your nature is kind. Your nature is gracious. May we remember that as our hearts are prone to wander and our hearts do wander. May we not take a moment of hesitation, but fly back to our Savior. There our heart is safe. There our heart is warm. There we are received. All because of what Christ did on our behalf. Thank you for him as we sing and we want to worship Christ and him alone for the work he did on our behalf. Pray this in his name. Amen.